0: Hello, Trash Future listeners. This is Nate. Uh, we've got a quick segment that we're going to publish on our feed outside of the normal publication order for episodes. Uh, I had a chance to speak with Brian Hugh, who is the editor for New Bloom Magazine and is reporting on the ground in Hong Kong at this moment. And we had a quick discussion about what's taking place in Hong Kong and the attempts to organize a general strike and some of the larger contextual issues around what's happening there and specifically how hell world technology of the future plays a role in making protest more difficult. Anyway, I hope you enjoy. All right, so we're speaking with uh, with Brian Hugh, the editor of New Bloom Magazine. Brian, how are you doing?
1: Good. Thanks for having me.
0: Very, very glad to have you. So, could you maybe give our listeners a little bit of background as to what's going on in Hong Kong right now?
1: Mm -hmm. So, currently, Hong Kong is in the middle of a set of protests, um, which are quite large. The one on Sunday, for example, is thought possibly to be the largest protest in the history of Hong Kong, uh, mobilizing over one million people, um, which is one in seven residents of Hong Kong. And so the protests are against an extradition bill that is being pushed forward by the Hong Kong government at Beijing's behest. And the bill would allow for Hong Kong uh, citizens to be deported to China to face charges. Um, Currently previously there was no extradition treaty along those lines. However. A concern is that this could be used as a way to persecute political dissidents. Uh, For example, if you are a democracy activist or you advocate Hong Kong independence, you could be deported then to China to face charges, this being illegal. And so it could be a way of carrying out, for example, um, these kidnappings that were previously taking place um, in Hong Kong, for example, there were five booksellers that were previously kidnapped and they appeared in China to face charges because they were publishing books that were critical of Xi Jinping, the Chinese president. Um, but this was done again clandestinely, and with the new law to be done openly, is also thought it could interfere with Hong Kong's judiciary. For example, judges will make rulings on the basis of not judicial independence, but just in the knowledge that if they don't rule the way Beijing wants them to, they could be deported to China too. And so, this kind of very wide ranging effects. Um, this even is even speculation is that if you are transiting through Hong Kong Airport, Hong Kong International Airport, to another d- destination, you could still be pull off your flight and actually sent to China to face charges there. And so this actually, given how much air traffic passes through Hong Kong, this could affect people in other countries that maybe have done things to make uh, China not too happy. For example, myself, uh, where, you know, I come from Taiwan, and so some of the writing I do does not make China happy. And so, uh, This could actually affect not just Hong Kong, but also surrounding locations. Um, But yeah, I mean, this is the largest set of protests in uh, five years. And again, like possibly in the history of Hong Kong. It's just question now whether it will continue, uh, whether the government will back down or not, or uh, what next happens.
0: Looking at this, it seems like there's an echo of the protests that took place in 2014.
1: Um, yeah, that's right. I mean, the, uh, it's very similar to the umbrella movement protests. I mean, I wasn't around for those, but it is, uh, you do see callbacks to the movement very quickly. Um, you know, for example, in some of the initial actions, uh, when there was uh, kind of, you know, just a call for direct action outside of the Legislative Council, LegCo uh there after several hours there demonstrators tried to kind of build up a supply station and that supply station was kind of a callback to uh, the umbrella movement um, yeah yeah I mean had people setting up tents there in a similar manner to the umbrella movement and some of the kind of iconography reappeared on the uh, uh, yesterday. When uh, there was quite a lot of place violence, but there's, uh, for example, there was like a uh, during during the umbrella movement, they set up a wall uh, of sticky notes on the side of the legislative council building, and that was called the democracy wall. And that was also very quickly set up again. Um, yeah, so you kind of have the you know recollection of this uh, movement five years ago, and also kind of guides some of the the tactics that the demonstrators uh, picked.
0: G- gotcha. And, and so among those tactics includes uh, a general strike and a student strike, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, it's very interesting because that's quite unusual. Um, you did see student strikes in the past before in Hong Kong. Uh, for example, student unions, uh, usually college student unions, played a large role in the umbrella movement in which there were quite a lot of students mobilizing. Um, there was a student strike in the week that before the movement broke out, if I recall, but then the movement just suddenly escalated um, and it became this thing that nobody anticipated it would be so large. Um, you know, in, in 2014, when that student strike happened, I think uh, there's also kind of based the thought that maybe the movement had petered out, that wouldn't actually be so big um, and you know actually just going back to 2014 there was uh, Occupy Central with Love and Peace that was the planned action to Occupy Central which is a district in Hong Kong and you can see a kind of the, the influence of the kind of Occupy style movements that had appeared around the world during that time including obviously Occupy Wall Street in America but also for example the Sunfire movement in Taiwan um, which is just across which is sort of Hong Kong's neighbor in many ways um, and so forth but then the general strike I mean that's an interesting tactic because in memory it hasn't really been Tried in Hong Kong before. Uh, the maybe last time that actually really happened was a Canton uh, Hong Kong strike that occurred in 1925. And so, of course, the notion of having a general strike and having society ground to a halt. Uh, as part of that, and this being the way to show the power of the people to the government, that's that's, that's a, a new development. Um, but unfortunately, it wasn't actually as successful as people thought. The focus was still on, I think, this uh, protest action outside of the legislative council, and also this um, occupation style, kind of this, this attempt at a big occupation in the recollection of the Umbrella Movement. Um, I think the the key factor may have been just that not enough unions and not enough um, companies and so forth signed on to the general strike beforehand. It was 100 companies, over 100 companies, but those were mostly small businesses. And so you didn't have huge amounts of workers not going to work. uh, it was still mostly operating. And I think also part of it is that the the notion of a general s- strike was suggested very late, and it it took hold of uh, activists and so forth because in the absence of other ideas, other creative means besides repeating the kind of the same things that have been done and tried before in the past that have not succeeded.
0: Gotcha. And, and so you you said that that given the police response that's taken place today and yesterday, um, mm-hmm. are you are are you foreseeing like a potentially, um. An enlargement of those protests or, you know, more concentrated action along the lines of a strike? Or are you are you seeing the potential for it just to be shut down because of, you know, the fact that the state has gotten involved?
1: It's a good question. And I don't know, actually, now, because I think that we're at an interesting moment in which things are up in the air um, as we speak. Uh, for example, there was the attempt to kind of maintain that occupation uh, yesterday um, after the uh, kind of, you know, putative attempt at an occupation around the Legislative Council building was taken apart and uh, police came in with the largest uh, amount of police force since uh, the, the handover of Hong Kong from British control to Chinese control in 1997. Um, and tear gas was set off and they were firing water cannons and rubber bullets and, and you know, things of like nature. Um, the attempt was made to occupy Central again, and so the, the attempt was to move the there and kind of hold a street and to control the street. And that didn't really work out. Eventually, I mean, people could have stayed there overnight. They could have tried that, but the consensus was reached to kind of withdraw for the time being and take the supplies that people had and leave before the train stopped running, and to save energy for another time. The idea of a general strike might come up again. Uh, I think that uh, it didn't really capture you know the public in that way. That it was something that was new and and not been tried. And that's what I think activists are desperately searching for. Um, but if so, it needs to be much wider in society. And I think one of the issues is uh, Hong Kong's lack of uh, labor activity. Uh, historically, um, the fact that, uh, you know, Hong Kong, the system of government, you actually have these, you know, non-elected, uh, these representatives that are not elected by members of the public, functional constituencies in which they're represented by corporate or business interests or industrial interests. And, you uh, you know, there is a past, uh, for example, like uh, you can look at the 1960s, the leftist riots in Hong Kong and so forth, but that kind of history is not as salient to the present. And, uh, you know, unions, too, divide along pro Beijing and pro, you know, pan democratic lines. Um, I mean, the largest pan democratic union did actually throw support behind the general strike uh, yesterday. However, that was still not enough to, you know, mobilize enough people to ground everything in society to a halt. And so I think it really has to expand to uh, different industries now, key industries vital for the operation of society. Um, for example you know bus drivers uh, they s- did not strike but they said yesterday that they would drive more slowly um, you know in or as, as a slowdown basically in order to, as, mm-hmm. as their show of, uh, of protest um, there's actually this kind of a talk over the fact that they, they posted um, a bus unit posted just you know slow down do not speed up as your sign of protest that would be that would be dangerous um and so i think that's, that's it's a question now i mean um after the umbrella movement there was increased organization among particularly i think white collar workers in for example ngos or different organizations uh, uh that are occupationally based um but is that still enough to actually influence society as a whole i mean just for example the uh, demonstration on sunday did mobilize one in seven people and in theory that should uh, that should be a broad swath of society but just how to uh, you know, disrupt the key functioning of society. And I mean, one in seven is, if one in seven people took the day off from work, that would actually probably ground a lot of things in society to a halt. But even getting to that point may be difficult. And I think that it was just announced on way too short notice.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I, I'm also wondering, too, because uh, when you you, you hearken back to the Occupy movement, um, there are obviously mm-hmm. a significant amount of concerns and issues that were raised, you know, that that, that gained traction with people. And I'm wondering, it, the extradition treaty seems like it's been, or the proposed extradition law seems like it's uh, been a spark. But I'm wondering if you could speak to maybe some of the other concerns that might be animating some of this, because from from a little bit of, of just digging and gleaning on my part, it's, it strikes me that uh, there are significant amounts of concerns, both with what you described as like the non representative nature of of the government and also issues like cost of living or or stagnating wages and things along those lines. I'm wondering uh, if you could speak to that condition in Hong Kong.
1: Yeah, I mean, Hong Kong is one of the most unequal societies in the world, and young people face uh, low salaries, uh, long work hours, they live in cramped, extremely cramped buildings, and so these are, again, like, I mean, I think as also with uh, the Occupy movements and so forth, these are also an animated concern that uh, you have these uh, socioeconomic discontents that motivate people into action, and that action also um, is tied to democratic freedoms, uh, the fact that people don't have... Uh, you could say economic democracy, um, and is also tied to the, the changes in Hong Kong which have occurred after the handover um, with the rise of China, for example, Hong Kong, uh, which was in theory supposed to serve as China's gateway to the West and the international world for at least 50 years, um, with no system, with, without the whole on-country two systems uh, being changed. Uh, that did not happen, China took off pretty quickly, and so Hong Kong became... Uh, uh, it could just become a Chinese city, and that's kind of the fear. And that does also tie into, I think, these uh, uh, economic discontents. And, you know, there's also concern about Chinese immigration, um, which there is a lot of in Hong Kong at this point. Um, to that extent, I think just the issue of the extradition treaty, it could have been one issue that uh, set off protests. And in the past years, there have been a lot of issues. For example, candidates um, being prevented from running from office on the basis of their political views. Uh, candidates being removed from office on different auspices, once, even if they had a, won, won uh, an election just right before. Or candidates being arrested and put in jail um, even very young people, um, people in their 20s, their early 20s. And uh, probating mobs being mobilized to attack people. Um, So these concerns are all present, but they did not spark a a protest that that galvanized all society into the streets. And so this extradition treaty did. And I wonder why myself, why is it this issue did that? I mean, I think it may have been... burnout in the five years from the Umbrella Movement up until now, that there's a need for people to recover and, you know, become less tired and be willing to protest again. I think another factor is that the extradition treaty could, in theory, affect everybody. Um, It's not that, you know, you have to go vote or maybe you lose the right to vote or some candidate can't run or whatever. It's that you can just maybe be arbitrarily sent to China and you don't know for what reasons you can be sent there. I mean, for example, a... uh, A creator of uh, LGBTQ fanfiction was sentenced to ten years in jail in China. So things like that, like just even just like drawing, uh, you know, slash fiction between your favorite characters from, I don't know, Game of Thrones, like that could, you know, be something that you could maybe get sent to China for. I don't know. And so these kind of concerns, maybe that's why it sparked uh, of uh, so much protest this time.
0: You also mentioned in some of your reporting that there were some solidarity protests and gatherings taking place elsewhere within the region, within in Taiwan and in, in Japan. I'm wondering, uh, have you seen any participation or any ways in which people, uh, say, outside of Asia might be able to support this or, or even just learn more?
1: Um, yeah, it's actually very interesting because um, there have been Saudi rallies in cities around the world. Um, major cities usually, you know, let's say London, New York, uh, I think Melbourne, um, just name a few off the top of my head. I think the list is like 20 or so cities. And a lot of times it is organized by the uh, Hong Kong diaspora in these cities. Um, You know, Hong Kong does have people that are of Hong Kong descent in, in various parts of the world, and so uh, they're still concerned with issues that take place in Hong Kong so they organize. And what's interesting, too, is that with the Umbrella Movement five years ago, um, you had these kind of networks forming uh, to hold Saudi rallies then, five years ago. And now, five years later, these networks are still around in some form, and so it's, it's easier in, to organize more quickly. And I think that's had a, a kind of legacy. And I, and I think in Taiwan, um, because you know Taiwan also faces the issue of uh, claims by China over that that Taiwan is part of China, despite the fact that unlike Hong Kong, Taiwan is de facto independent. Um, so there's this kind of concern with Hong Kong, and uh, you know there are also ties between, for example, uh, social movement actors in Taiwan and Hong Kong that go way back. Um, you know, some of these people have known each other for years and years and years. And so it's not surprising why there would be so many solidarity rallies in uh, Taiwan currently. Um, for example, there was. Five consecutive days of solidarity rallies to date, and that's never happened before for any cause. Basically, Um, these are all organized basically by different uh, social movement actors, and uh, yeah, they they just keep taking place. I mean, I think there's one taking place Saturday, too, and there's one in Japan that was organized by uh, Taiwanese expats in Japan, Taiwanese activists uh, living in Japan who are expats living there, I believe, in collaboration with uh, local Japanese activists. Um, That's also just something I've never seen before, and I think that's quite interesting.
0: So, from, from where you are, I mean, I've been I've been following your reporting since we spoke yesterday. Um, it, it seems like it, it's been a lot of long days, long nights of reporting. What does it feel like, if you can just describe that, like on the ground? does, this, does Do you feel like a certain degree of, of momentum or enthusiasm?
1: It really depends on what day. I mean, like today, it's quiet. Uh, there's nothing. Um, nothing has happened. There's no protest action. And so, just an empty street. And, uh, you know, the area around uh, the Legislative Council has been empty. Um, it was like that on, on Monday, too, after the big protests on Sunday. Uh, you know, the, the historic, possibly uh, largest protest in Hong Kong history, in which just all the traces of the protests were removed, and, and just the area around Lyko was just empty, and uh, you could see the police setting up barriers in preparation for um, just anticipated future protests. You see the office workers just testing the barriers because they seem bored and have nothing else to do, and things like that. Um, but it's also kind of surprising how, how these, these uh, explosions of mass activity and they just disappear and then you have another explosion and it disappears. I think that just in general with the, you know, let's say occupation stop protests from Occupy Wall Street up until the president, it's one of those things that's like almost a little frightening that the city just kind of devours protests. Um, you know, if you're around the block, you might not even notice a protest that's tens of thousands of people. And then the next day, sometimes very few traces of it remain. Um, I mean, I think that with some of the uh, debris that gets left behind for these protests, um, You know that it's there's still visible signs, Um, but also another thing is that you know protesters, in order to maintain a civic image, a civil image, uh, which makes them more amenable to the eyes of the public, which sometimes will criticize them for being troublemakers, uh, they tend to clean up after a protest, and so you know they'll clean up the supplies they had, and the cardboard they had, and any any you know cigarettes or whatever left behind, and that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I'm I'm also wondering because I remember that the Occupy Wall Street protests in 2011. um, at the time, the idea of social media being significantly involved in protests was kind of novel. Now, at this point, it, it's sort of par for the course. I'm wondering how has that played out uh, in, in, in in social media, local to Hong Kong and Chinese language media? What have you been seeing as far as like the way it's being portrayed? <clears throat>
1: Yeah, I mean, social media has come to play an important role in, I think, uh, a lot of contemporary Asian social movements um, in mobilizing people. I mean, sometimes the way you announce an event is just like a Facebook page now. Um, but I think particularly in Hong Kong, uh, now what we see is increasing concerns with technology and digital surveillance, uh, particularly in the last five years since the umbrella movement. Uh, for example, a lot of the protesters are very concerned about having their image captured, um, and so they try to hide their faces with the surgical mask, as is common to wear in Asia if you're sick. Um, and also, it's a good way to prevent you from breathing in tear gas. And also, I mean, the concern is, uh, uh, you know, facial recognition software. Um, We also have uh, reports of uh, uh, people that are traveling to protest sites being afraid to use their usual MRT card, uh, the Octopus card, because of concern that this could be used to track them and to know, uh, you know, what their movements are. And so they're buying paper tickets. Well, not paper tickets. I mean, they're they're these, uh, uh, you know, plastic card things. But uh, uh, they're buying those instead. And uh, so they can be tracked. And I think a lot of communication is occurring through uh, Telegram, for example. There's these big Telegram groups in which there's like like 10,000 people, and people are sharing updates and stuff all the time. And sometimes you can't actually sort out what is uh, real information and what is a rumor. Um, and there was actually a big issue recently. Um, in the past day, the administrator of one of these groups was reportedly arrested, and he was a 22-year-old house student. But now the after he was arrested, uh, now that police have its cell phone, they have access to everyone in that group. And so the police know the identities of these, uh, or the phone numbers anyway, of these uh, 10,000 people in the oh, group. Wow. Yeah, and so it's one of those things that even with uh, uh, so-called uh, encrypted end-to-end encryption, uh, you can still have fairly low-tech means of, of getting information to who uh, is in these groups just through uh, you know arresting the administrator and looking at his cell phone or his computer, or, you know, things like that. Um, so these, these concerns are still salient. And I think communicating information is very difficult, uh, particularly on Tuesday when there's was a... a, a kind of a when the kind of attempted occupation of round Leco began uh, that was just strangely enough just internet rumors of you know a gathering there at 10 or 11 or what, what have you and just like these different times floating around and as a result just uh, young people just started appearing there in in the hundreds uh, eventually like probably around like 2000 just around like 9 or 8 or so and that was also just kind of uh, surprising because just how did this happen just people just show up expecting something will happen and then it happens and the thing is also a lot of them did have social movement experiences it seems like uh, just based on how quickly they respond to the police you know knowing what to do when there's tear gas called umbrellas uh, you know to hand out the goggles and helmets and things like that and and uh, so forth, and what the tactics are to take in those cases or when to fall back or when to try to push forward
0: well wow, that's 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 really i mean it's just kind of mind blowing when I think about that about the extent to which n- number one that information is able to be disseminated that people are able to be informed, but then number two, like you just described, the extent to which if something is compromised, then all of a sudden that falls into the hands of the state and you know, who knows what's gonna happen. I mean, as I understand it, there were crackdowns, not like en masse, but there were there were crackdowns following the twenty fourteen protests involved with you described it previously, with people, you know, even as young as like undergraduate age going to prison. Um has there been I've seen in, in some of your reporting that there have been injuries, there have been arrests, have there has there been any, you know, sort of indication that people are going to be that they're potentially going to be going after organizers? Like not so as like a target of opportunity like you just described, but something more, you know, planned.
1: Uh, I think it might be possible. I think it is possible. Um, and for example, there was the arrest I just mentioned uh, regarding the uh, organizer of that, uh, the administrator yeah. of that, that that Telegram group. Uh, but I think also just a lot of the people we see now are sort of new faces. I mean, some of them seem experienced, but some of them actually seem very young. Uh, they seem like they were not old enough to participate in the umbrella movement. And so it's also not very clear who the demonstrators are even at this point. Just that they appear and and uh, you know gather, and it's not very clear who the leaders are, or things like that, or if there are leaders. Um, a lot of it does seem very very flexible and. Fluid and so forth. I mean, um, and so I think that that will become more clear as time goes by. But I think you probably can find people, the government probably can find people to target. For example, in the age of digital media and social media, you could find key opinion leaders online and and target this person as a uh, sign of intimidation. And I think the government will do that. I mean, the police have noticeably adopted a mentality of protesters are the enemy. We're not your fellow citizens. you're the enemy. And that applies to young people, that applies to journalists and so forth. And, you know, you do have cases of them targeting, um, you know, for them are targeting journalists to fire at them or, uh, you know, random searches conducted of young people. Um, and so I think, yeah, the, the possibility of reprisals is quite high currently.
0: All right, Brian, well, thank you so much for your time on this. We really appreciate this update and this information. And I just want to give you an opportunity to, to plug any of your own work.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah thanks for having me and so I run new Bloom magazine um, I'm one of the founding editors um, we're a Taiwanese publication we were founded in 2014 after the Sun Farm movement which was a uh, occupation of the Taiwanese legislature for a month about similar issues regarding sovereignty and, and democratic freedoms being eroded um, due to the desire to unify with China and so we also are concerned with the uh, Asia Pacific products broadly from a left perspective from an implicitly radical left perspective and that includes Hong Kong which is why I'm here currently um, and so yeah so yeah just feel free to follow us for continued News reports on what's going on in Hong Kong or in Taiwan or elsewhere.
0: All right, Brian Hugh, thank you so much.
1: Yeah, thank you.